Hello, and welcome back to Wisconsin Law in Action, a podcast where we discuss new and forthcoming scholarship of the University of Wisconsin Law School professors. I'm your host, Chris Turner, and my guest today is Professor Steph Tai. Professor Tai is here today to discuss two articles that were published in 2020. The first article is titled, In Fairness to Future Generations of Eaters, and was published in the Georgetown International Environmental Law Review. The second article is called Legalizing the Meaning of Meats and was published in the Loyola University Chicago Law Review. Both articles focus on different aspects of food law and the changing dynamic of how the law preserves and defines food as we know it. Thank you for joining the podcast today, Professor Tai. Thanks so much for having me here, Chris. Sure, I'm glad it worked out. Before we jump into your two most recent articles, we always like to start the podcast learning more about our guest background, specifically your research and scholarly writing interests. What got you interested in writing about food law? Um, I actually never, that wasn't sort of my background um, in terms of practice, but when I moved to Wisconsin, um, there were a number of students who were interested in agricultural law, um, and as I started sort of formulating a class on agricultural law, um, I started integrating in sort of food elements to it too. And so I teach a seminar on food systems law, which covers parts of agricultural law, parts of food law, and um, students write papers on all sorts of topics. It's a truly fascinating topic that crosses pretty much every boundary of law, in my opinion. That's what makes it so fascinating. Anyone can join in and learn something about it, which I'm really glad that you offer these classes to the students. But with that, let's go ahead and get to your two most recent articles, starting with In Fairness to Future Generations of Eaters. It's a bit strange to start a discussion this way, but I want to quote someone that you're talking about in the article, Carlo Petrini, founder of the International Slow Food Movement, who says, food history is as important as Baroque church. Governments should recognize cultural heritage and protect traditional foods. A cheese is as worthy of preserving as a 16th century building. That really grabbed me. I love that quote. How does your article expand on that idea? Well, it expands on the idea by arguing that um, we need to take food heritage seriously. And if we are to do so, we need to um, think about the threat of climate change to um, the stability of not only the food supply as having enough food, but also our food heritage. Um, so in the article, I talk about a number of types of food heritage that are under threat due to climate change because of, again, changing um, the ways that they change their agricultural systems, the way that that climate change can change precipitation. Um, it leads to a lack of availability of certain types of food products that are essential to certain types of foods. It sounds to me like the urgency around climate change, especially in recent years, is what motivated you to focus on that topic. Is that true or was there anything else that made you want to look at this area of food law? Well, part of it was this um, this entire symposium issue of the journal was a um, tribute to a professor of mine from law school, Professor Edith Brown Weiss. And she wrote um, a sort of seminal piece on um, thinking about intergenerational equity. And so her piece was, um, in fairness to future generations, talking about how intergenerational equity is a principle that should inform how we protect the environment. Um, that is, um, we should think about preserving things not just simply for ourselves, but so that future generations have the same access to well-being that we have ourselves now. Um, and so I was expanding upon this and applying it to my area of law, food, um, and talked. And so the essay talks about um, applying this intergenerational equity kind of principle um, to food and to the extent that there is any great threat to our food supply now and food culture, um, it's it's climate change. It's it's affecting things. I'm, I'm actually working on an article about how France and California 
are taking different approaches to addressing um, the regulation of wine and the labeling of wine in light of the way that climate change is going to change um, the kinds of wines that are accessible. Hmm. That's really interesting. That should definitely raise some red flags for everybody to say that wine will be possibly less accessible or at least accessible in different ways with climate change affecting it. So it's, I look forward to talking about that article with you once that's out there. So that's exciting. Uh, you have a series of suggestions in the in this article in Fairness's Future Generations of Eaters about how to potentially protect the future generations. What are the first steps to implementing these protective measures? Well, so I, the kinds of things that I suggest um, include expanding beyond sort of simply listing individual types of um, foods as protected as cultural heritage, which is something I go through um, in the article that's been done. Um, but the listing part is um, kind of difficult um, to in terms of creating this kind of broader protection. It takes um, individual countries to sort of offer to list particular types of things. It takes approval. There's a whole process about that. Um, and it fails to adjust a sort of a broader kind of vision of cultural heritage of food. That is, it's you know going step by step saying, okay, this one food is listed, this other food is listed. And so one thing that I argue is that we could expand this more by extending more resources um, to protect foods relevant to cultural heritage instead of focusing on um, you know, individual protected foods. So that's one thing um, that I bring up. And I draw from um, sort of the work of the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance, um, which works with youth groups to provide access to traditional foods. And that is something that seems to be successful in certain areas. And I would say that you know, the, the main groups that have been highly successful in protecting and expanding food heritage um, has been um, indigenous groups because they've been sort of focused on food sovereignty. Um, and so, you know, a lot of my suggestions revolve around modeling um, between some of these sort of successful um, elements of their advocacy. Right. It seems like a big part of that is education of, of the younger generations, the newer generations, about why this food is important to their culture and why it is has been maintained for literally hundreds, thousands of years in many ways. How would some of the modeling go for a country like, say, let's just pick on France again, since you mentioned it, how would France go about modeling uh, something off of the tribal sovereignty of food culture? Well, I would say that actually France is maybe um, also an example of a country that does it well. You know, they, they actually, um, do a lot in terms of having um, their agencies sort of promote traditional types of French food. So they're actually, um, they devote a lot of resources to that already. I would say sort of some of the countries which we, you know, don't necessarily see that done well um, is, for instance, the United States, where we don't have really much um, sort of state governmental force devoted to that. There's a lot of different sort of nonprofit groups, um, for instance, like the Slow Food Movement, but also, yeah, Southern Foodways Alliance, um, which is also a nonprofit sort of that studies um, and celebrates the different food cultures of the American South. And so there's a lot of um, sort of individual kind of nonprofits, um, but there's not sort of a more dedicated kind of force for that. Right, so maybe get some get that dedicated force either at the state, federal, local government level to provide more heft to the movements. Sounds like a good positive way to do this. Okay, great, thanks for answering that. I actually enjoyed your article leaving the reader with some questions since they are questions I haven't really considered before. Any thoughts on how to best balance food culture with food that may affect climate change? It does kind of seem like a balancing act to me. Yeah, and I think it is. I think one thing that it takes is actually a lot of sort of public response. Um, that is um, sort of thinking through how um, how eaters would want their food to be. I mean, right, there's a sort of individual kind of, um, I would say, um, sovereignty element to it, right, to figure out what 
what should this type of food look like in the future? And I don't think that there's any, there should be any sort of single entity that dictates this, but these should all be sort of considered. That is a very fascinating aspect of it. It is the sovereignty of the culture and of the nation to decide how this food looks like into the future. It's a developing thing. Just to freeze it in time is not the solution necessarily if the sovereign decides that it's not the way they want to go with their own food culture. Yeah. Uh, as you can tell, I really I enjoyed the article because it really opened my eyes to aspects of food law I hadn't considered before. So I really encourage people to read this article and dig into this as a new aspect of it. And we'll link out to it, of course, on the podcast page. But now let's move on to your other article and consider the burger. Legalizing the meaning of meat examines lab labeling regulations for non-livestock meat products. Why is this a controversy or a concern? Well, it's a concern partly because um, as I put it in my paper, there's a battle for the center of the plate, right? So in the much of U.S. cuisine, right, um, we center our cuisine around what we call meat, um, although it's not necessarily, as I say in my article, it's clear cut what meat is. Um, but we think of dishes as having, you know, some centerpiece that is either chicken or pork or veggie burger. Um, and um, the concern of much of the livestock industry is that this is going to cut into their um, sort of own business, right? As people shift away from livestock-based meats to more plant-based meats, um, the concern is, right, this is going to cut down on their dollars. And so um, the claim is that this is leading to consumer confusion, that is. So they're using consumer confusion claim um, to argue that, no, these things shouldn't be called meat. And the underlying sort of motive behind that is presumably that if people don't see these things as being labeled as burgers or as cutlets or whatever, then they won't choose to buy these products, you know, because otherwise, you know, patties maybe doesn't sound as appealing in some kind of way. Right. When I was in law school, I had to um, represent in a class, the dairy industry saying that almond milk is not a correct label because of the term milk is it's not from dairy. And it was really fascinating to try to dig into the dairy aspect of it and say, well, they are just using the term milk to attract consumer attention, which sounds very similar to what's happening here with labeling uh, cutlets and burgers in the same way. What's interesting, though, is um Although the claim is that this is leading to consumer confusion, if you look at the history of um, many of these types of plant-based sort of products, they've been called meats forever. You know, so it's not like a new thing. It is a new thing now that there's more plant-based meat products that very that simulate livestock-based meats pretty well. Um, but you know, in, in the past they hadn't simulated it quite as well. But um, you know, there's been um, and as I talk about in my history, there's been sort of soy-based meats for a long time. They've been talked about as meats. Same thing with milk, too. Um, if you look at old French cookbooks from, I forget which century I um, listed, but um, they're also, you know, they, they talk about almond milk as milk um, um, for, you know, they've talked about it for centuries. So it's not an unusual thing, the way that it's being characterized by the livestock industry. So what has changed recently that is becoming much more of a concern for the meat industry or for the dairy industry? I think it's that um, many of, well, especially with respect to the meats, um, they've just started tasting and feeling a lot more like meats. Um, and so there seems to be a real threat of, you know, substitution, um, as opposed to before when pretty much it was a more niche product, right? You mm -hmm. wouldn't see people who primarily eat meats, you know, delving into getting veggie burgers. Um, it's starting to happen more. You're seeing more consumers who are generally on the war sort of doing more substitution without being that, a vegetarian. That makes sense. The threat seems much more real to these industries now that someone could 
potentially pick up a veggie burger and say, I can't tell the difference. And then that that's the bottom line finance wise to, to these industries. So what are some of the legal challenges out there about labeling meat? So they, there's been a lot of, uh, so the legal challenges have mostly been from the sort of plant um, based meat industries, because what's happened is that in many states, um, the livestock lobby has gotten states to pass different labeling laws saying that certain types of quote unquote, um, meat terms, either meat or burgers or whatever, can't be used for plant-based meats. And so the challenges have been primarily on sort of First Amendment and sort of narrow tailoring kind of grounds. Um, and so far, they've been fairly successful coming from the sort of plant-based kind of meat industry. So that's that's part of what's going on already in the sort of plant-based products. It's more complicated when you get into um, other types of non-livestock-based meats. So um, one thing is that you're starting to, we're starting to see more sort of insect-based kind of products on the market. Um, so far, those haven't been even, they haven't been um, formulated to resemble meat products. They've been mostly coming in the form of like sort of energy bars and things like that. But um, it's a possibility that as um, the insect-based food industry grows, that they can, this can encroach upon the livestock-based industry. And then the largest one is sort of the cell-cultured meats, um, which is something that um, the U.S. is still tackling in terms of developing a regulatory framework for it. But again, to the extent that you are in the livestock industry, you know, this could be a real threat um, once um, cell cultured meats become more affordable. That's really interesting. I hadn't considered uh, the insect meat aspect of it before to see like right now, it does not seem like a threat to these industries, but it would, could be potentially in the future, just as the veggie patties and other foods have been recently. So labeling, as you mentioned, the labeling battle seems pretty closely entwined with free speech concerns often, free to name your product as you see fit versus misleading or confusing terms on the label. How do you see that kind of untangling in the future? Well, I think um, I, I look at a bunch of sort of consumer studies to suggest that there's not really that much consumer confusion going on. And I think that the courts have generally um, seen that to be the case as well, um, that especially with sort of plant-based meats, people are buying them because they are plant-based. They're not cons they're not um, confused that this is really secretly livestock-based meats at all. Um, so, so to the extent that there's this claim of um, consumer confusion, it doesn't seem to be supported by the reasoning of people in terms of buying these products in the first place. When I had to do my hypothetical dairy milk v. almond milk in law school, I had a tough time finding consumer confusion because I was representing the dairy yeah. industries. So it, I, uh, I, have, I came to the same rough conclusion on my own limited research. <laughs> I, I had an uphill battle on my end with the dairy industry. So that makes sense. Uh, what steps can sustainable food advocates take in helping to shape the labeling question? Well, I think that one thing that sustainable food advocates can do is to realize what's underlying these sorts of um, labeling claims, right? That the real battle isn't about whether or not consumers are being confused, but about what things consumers should be buying, right? Um, should they be buying more livestock-based products? Should they be buying, which um, have a lot of concerns regarding sort of um, climate change effects, water effects, et cetera? Or um, are there things that they can buy with a lighter carbon footprint, a lighter environmental footprint? Um, and that, you know, sometimes what seems to be on the surface, just kind of labeling kind of concern, is really a battle for what to eat. This doesn't mean that, you know, Sustainable food advocates need to necessarily um, have their have 
products marketed as meat, though. I'm not suggesting that that necessarily needs to be the battle, um, but rather that they should understand that this is what's going on behind this battle. One topic that runs through both articles, and you've alluded to this already, is how food and culture and law interact with climate change. How do you see food law and especially supply chains, especially in this time of COVID where supply chains were threatened or at least were had a developed a concern, uh, developing to take climate change into consideration? I think it's, um, it's going to be tricky. So I think that one thing that um, we need to recognize is the multiple effects that food, the multiple ways in which the effects run. So on one hand, climate change can affect the availability of particular types of food. Um, for example, as areas dry up, um, certain areas dry up, you get um, too little precipitation to raise certain types of crops. Like for instance, the Midwest, I think are supposed to actually have more flooding that can also destroy certain types of crops. So climate change can affect the availability of food, but at the same time, um, agri the agricultural um, industry itself can be a large contributor to climate change. And so I think the first part is sort of recognizing that the effects run both ways. It's both affected by and affecting climate change. How has COVID affected food law in the past year or so? So th that's been interesting. One thing that happened um, during the pandemic was, and this was somewhat controversial, was that um, the FDA um, decided to lower its enforcement actions against sort of certain types of labeling kind of things. And um, because partly the idea was that um, that companies shouldn't be held to as rigorous a standard, given that we're just sort of scrabbling to get food across to people. Um, this was a concern because one of the things that was affected was allergen labeling. Um, and so folks with specific types of allergies were quite concerned about that um, in terms of you know what happens if something is labeled as allergen free, but actually contains those allergens because and, and there's nothing really stopping that. So that's one thing. Another thing that's been really, um, oh, the another thing too is the sort of emergency order, right? Um, where um, meat processing facilities um, were included under um, as sort of an emergency industry kind of thing. And so um, that was, some folks raised concerns about that um, because the concern was that having that emergency order meant that um, the facilities would keep operating um, in the same kind of way, right, that they were operating before, which is a bunch of workers working in close quarters. And so that would lead to sort of um, increased risk of sort of getting COVID. Um, so that was another major thing that happened. Yet another major thing I think that's been interesting too, um, and this steps outside of food law and just is more sort of um, the food industry as a whole, is we started seeing larger reliance on delivery services and things. Um, and that has been controversial too, um, in that um, a number, there's been a lot of exposés over the summer that um, a number of the food delivery services weren't actually working with the restaurants to get the foods listed. The restaurants didn't even know they were being listed. And so they were adding on this sort of additional markup, um, thus sort of drawing from drawing away from the restaurant's profits. Um, that was also a controversial thing. And so some states have started looking into regulating that more. Um, and so that's these are just a few of the things that happened during the pandemic. Just a personal side for me is I once used one of the food delivery services and I ordered something from a restaurant. It turns out the restaurant had closed and had moved. And yeah. I 
had given money to the company and I said, the, they are no longer open. And it took a little bit of a battle just to get that. It was almost a principle on principle. It wasn't much money, but I was like, you cannot take my money for a restaurant that is no longer open that you are listing is open right now. Yeah. Very interesting about what kind of regulations may come down the pike to make sure that this kind of stuff doesn't happen too frequently, especially possibly after COVID and the loosening of regulations tighten back up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with all that. Uh, what do you hope researchers take away from your work, particularly these two articles? One thing is that I hope researchers understand um, that food as an element of regulation um, is complicated by the ways in which consumers approach food. Unlike many other things that are being regulated, we kind of need food to survive. Um, there's a lot of other things that are being regulated where you don't necessarily need that. And we don't just need food to survive, but everyone has their own individual relationship with food um, that is complicated by cultural meetings, by you know diet, by all sorts of things. And that um, these kinds of debates, I think, often complicate um, sort of um, the regulatory process for food. Um, one example I gave is like how difficult it was to start first start regulating insects as a sort of food product because. Traditionally, insects are regarded as a contaminant. And so you have all these things in the FDA's code about the percentage of insects that are allowable in certain types of processed food. And now suddenly people are trying to market insects as food. And so you had to sort of detangle some of that. So that's, you know, it's, it's sort of um, these cultural shifts um, can sometimes lead to sort of complicated elements of food law. Right. And food law to me seems much less esoteric and how the law really affects your day-to-day -day life. As you said, food is something everyone is interacting with on a daily basis, at least two, three times a day. Um, whereas something like contracts law or torts law, you're like, oh, I know that exists, but it's not something <laughs> I'm dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think that's very important to keep this in mind about how that affects the food you are taking from the grocery store or ordering out from, um, from Uber or DoorDash or whatever it might be. So fascinating stuff. Thank you very much, Professor Tai. As always, we'll link to Professor Tai's scholarship on our podcast page. Uh, we've been discussing two of Professor Tai's most recent articles, In Fairness to Future Generations of Eaters, published in the Georgetown International Environmental Law Review, and Legalizing the Meaning of Meat, published in the Loyola University Chicago Law Review. You can find a list of Professor Tai's scholarship on their SSRN page or the University of Wisconsin Law School Repository. As I mentioned earlier, links to both these resources are posted along with this podcast at wilawinaction.law.wic.edu. Thank you again for joining us, Professor Tai, and I hope that all of you out there are now subscribed to our Wisconsin Law and Action podcast. But if you're not, find us on the Apple iTunes Store, Stitcher, or listen to our full archive at wilawinaction.law.wisc.edu. Thank you all for listening and happy researching.